Welcome back to the Julie Norman Show. This is the last episode of the season before we take a short break. And to close out the season, I'm delighted to have Dr. Kara Huser back on the show. As some of you may remember, Kara was my guest on the pilot episode of the show back in the spring when we spoke about stepping up in times of crisis. Kara is a medical doctor. She's an obstetrician who works with patients with high-risk pregnancies, and she's also my sister. And so I wanted to have her back on the show today to talk about two things. First, Kara is currently recovering from a live organ donation. She just donated part of her liver to help an anonymous baby that she had never even met. But just like in our first episode, she doesn't see this as particularly heroic. She just felt she could, so she did. And so I wanted to talk to her a bit about that experience. And second, Kara has an essay coming out soon in a journal called The Green Journal. It's a journal that obstetricians and gynecologists apparently read a lot. Um, but it's on trying to balance reason and emotion. And Kara shared this with me. And I thought it was super interesting. Even though she was writing from the perspective of a medical professional, she was talking about this tension between reason and emotion and life in general as well. It was prompted by a specific experience she had in the operating room. And I was interested to talk more with her about this, this tension between logic and instinct that I think a lot of us grapple with, even subconsciously, sometimes in our professional lives and in our personal lives as well. Uh, this episode was a really interesting and always fun way to wrap up the season. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Kara Huser, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Julie. Um, so last time that you were on the podcast was back in the spring. I think it was maybe April that you were on and um, April or May maybe. And that day our theme was they call us and we go. And we were speaking about, you know, a lot of essential workers and just individuals who have stepped up during COVID. And at that time, doctors in particular in your field who were, you know, kind of stepping up to really go into the hot zones of of hospitals or areas to deal with Corona. So I just wanted to just start with just how, how are you doing? How did all that go for you and for your colleagues at the hospital? Like, where, where are things with all of that right now for you? Well, since we spoke last time, I think, um, you know, the, the crisis has not abated, certainly. But I think we all feel like we understand a little bit more about the disease, which makes it a little less overwhelming. Um, the treatments are still not where we'd like them to, to be, obviously, but we at least now have protocols and plans in place for how to treat these patients when they come in, how to protect ourselves, how to protect other patients. Um, we have backup contingency plans if the uh, hospital runs out of room, which currently doesn't seem to be happening. Um, so I think last time we talked, we were almost at that point where we were waiting for this huge tidal wave to hit and no one knew what it was going to be like. And I think now that we're a little further into it and we have some sense of what we're dealing with, it's it's not a good feeling, certainly, um, but it, it certainly feels like we're a little bit more armed with a little bit of knowledge. Sure. I've taken care of some very, very sick patients 
with COVID. Um, and so I, I do, I think last, since last time we talked, have a, you know, appreciation of just how bad this disease can be. Um, and that definitely does raise some frustrations when, um, you see people doing what humans do during, uh, pandemics, which is denying it and minimizing it. And that, that certainly is hard, something that's hard to deal with when you've been in the ICU all week trying to keep someone alive with it. But, uh, I have been reading a lot about that and I am somewhat comforted by the fact that humans have done that in every pandemic since the beginning of time. So at least we're not devolving. I take comfort in things like that too. Like other people I think get distressed when it's like, oh, like a something that we get frustrated by. Oh, and it's like, oh, it's happened so many times in history. We're not getting better. But I'm like, oh no, it's okay. Like it was happening all the time. And like, we still made it. <laughs> like, it's okay. Yes. Like, I take comfort in like faults of the past as well. And like kind of this like weird backwards way. Um, well, in a certain amount of like humans are doing what humans do. Yes, exactly. Um, well, I guess to move into things I wanted to talk more with you about today. Uh, I know that you are not in the hospital today at work like you normally would be because you are recovering from your recent live organ donation. And I think most of us, when we think about organ donating, it's either it's something we do when we're dead and have put it on our driver's license that like, yes, you can donate my organs or, you know, in some rare, very noble cases, people who are donating to a family member or someone close to them who they know, um, who need something, but you just donated part of your liver to an anonymous nine month old baby. So (laughs) who I understand is also, you are doing well and I understand the baby is doing well from what we know. Um, That's what I hear. But can you just give a little background on uh, on how you came to be doing this and what that process was like? Because I know this has been you know, over a year of preparation and getting ready for this. Yeah. So, you know, everyone wants to know, even in the hospital, the nurses that took care of me, what made you do this? Why are you doing this? So I've really tried hard to come up with a good answer, and I I don't I don't have a good pithy one. Um, the best I can come up with is I didn't have a good reason not to. Um, but let me give you since we're we have a little bit more time, I'll I'll give you the the backstory. Um, I you would think that I would have known that living organ donation was was more more of a thing being in the medical field, but it's a pretty different world from where I work, right? Um, so, you know, of course I'd heard, like you said, about people, um, donating to their, their spouse or their child or what have you. And of course, I've always been a big proponent of deceased organ donation. Um, I think that's something that people should talk to their families about and, and we should encourage, uh, in cases where there's no, you know, moral or religious objection of the person. Um, but I didn't know that you could just kind of sign up and do what's called non-directed. So non-directed means that when you sign up to donate the organ, the the team, the medical team just decides who it goes to. So you haven't directed it to a particular person. Um, When you give it to a family member or a friend or whatever, that's called a directed donation. Um, People use other terms for non-directed as well, and I don't like them as much. They use Good Samaritan, altruistic, some various other terms. And I guess I object to those because I see 
any act of putting yourself at risk to help someone else to be something a good Samaritan would do in an act of altruism. Sure. Um, So I kind of feel like that kind of makes it sound like those of us who did non-directed did something like even better. And I I don't think that's the case. Um, It's different for sure. It's a different experience and it's harder in some ways and it's easier in others. Um, So that's what, that's what non-directed means. Um, So anyway, um, I uh, have a friend that I keep in touch with on social media, like so many of us do in this day and age. Um, And she donated her kidney to her husband. And she started talking about how this is a thing you can do and being a bit of an advocate for it and educating other people. Um, And, you know, I said, well, you know, I don't have anyone I need to donate to. Like, how does this work? And she said, well, you just find a center near you and, um, you know, and sign up. So uh, I talked to some of my colleagues about kidney versus liver um, and there are some important differences there that are probably not of super interest to your uh, listeners. But if you feel like they're interesting, I'm happy to get into them later. Um, and long story short, I decided to go uh, with liver. Uh, I wanted to go through our children's hospital um, for, again, a number of reasons that I'm happy to talk about later if you're interested. Um, and so it is a long process. I mean, the first thing you do is just fill out a questionnaire online. Um, And a lot of people are eliminated based on previous health history or, you know, current comorbidities or what have you. So you kind of get through that and then you meet with the coordinator and they talk about what this looks like. And at that point, it's all very abstract to you. Um, I think it was probably a little bit more real to me than to a lot of people since I'm used to being in ORs and being in hospitals and um, cutting you know, doing surgery myself. Um, so that it, I think it made it a little bit more real, but still it seems like this thing that's sort of out there and might happen. Um, and then you go through a series of a lot of medical tests. For the liver, it turns out that there's a lot of variation in anatomy between humans. Um, and so there are some people who can't donate based on their own particular anatomy. So some of the early tests that they do are imaging studies to see if you can even continue to go on in the process. And they do it in a stepwise fashion so that you're not spending a lot of time and effort doing all of these approvals if just one of them is going to disqualify you. So they do the ones that are most likely to disqualify you upfront um, so that you can go on with your life. And I think, I, I don't know, I sort of just at every point was like, probably this won't, probably <laughs> this won't happen. Like this one will be the one that they're like, no, you can't do it. Um, and then that kept not happening. Um, and so I finally got to the point where I was like, I'm, I'm going to have to start like making plans. Like this could actually happen. Um, and I had to start telling people about it. Um, and that was an interesting experience. I mean, obviously I had talked to my husband prior to that. Um, but I had to tell our parents, I had to tell you, I think I told you pretty early. Um, I had to tell my coworkers to see if we could make it work, you know, at my job. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of this like weird thing to come out with. <laughs> uh, like there's no, like, there's no real lead in that you can do well. And then you drop this thing and people are like, what? You're doing what? Um, so that was definitely a weird experience. Um, but then you also have to meet with 
a, a number of people, um, including social work, psychiatry, nutrition, uh, hepatology, surgery, all of these things. So anyway, uh, long story short, you get through this process and it takes a variable amount of time. If you are a directed donor and someone is very, very ill, they can do it faster. Okay. Um, for me, we just sort of went along at a leisurely pace because there was no urgency to it. Um, so we got to the point where everything was approved and I was approved to donate and I had a date in April and then the pandemic happened. Right. Um, so it got moved or got canceled initially, which made sense. Um, I had been matched with a recipient at that point. Um, and they felt that in weighing the pros and cons to the recipient, it actually was better for that recipient to wait. Um, because once someone gets an organ, they have to take medications that make them immunocompromised, right? So Mm. they're more susceptible to diseases like, and now we have a pandemic. So you have to look at that too. And the team has to look at that. They're like, well, does this person need a liver first? Or are they more at risk if we give them medications that compromise their immune system in a pandemic? Sure. So they had to think about all of that. And I know it was a hard decision. And ultimately, they made the decision to cancel it. And that was a little emotionally difficult, mainly because of the logistics involved for me. Um, I think everyone, every donor has like their own sticking point, like their own thing. That's a big deal to them. And for me, it was the logistics. Yeah. Um, like I needed a date well in advance because I had to do a lot of coordinating at work. I had to do a lot of coordinating with the kids and my family and all of that. So I, I may have irritated the team and the fact that I was like, I need the date. The date is important. Like I will be low maintenance after that, but I need a date. Yeah. And so then having the date moved, like for me, was a big deal for other people. Like if they had a different, you know, thing, it might not have been, but for me it was. Um, so anyway, we eventually got it rescheduled for August. Um, in the meantime, the initial recipient did get a, I think deceased liver, um, and is I hear doing quite well. So that's great for them. So they matched me with a different recipient, which was fine with me. I honestly, uh, am not, super attached to who gets the liver. Um, I feel like by doing this, I'm helping everyone on the list because when you eliminate the top person on the list by giving them an organ, everyone else moves up. Yeah, sure. So like they get the next liver. So I feel like I'm helping everyone. So I wasn't really hung up on who got it or how that went. I just, you know, I trusted my team to make that decision. You did did intentionally choose a, a kid though, like wanted to be a child. I did. That I was a little hung up on, um, and uh, for a number of reasons. Um, I, th- I think I would be willing to donate my liver to an adult. I'm not sure I could do it to an adult I don't know at mm. all, just a random adult. I, that, that would be really hard for me um, for a number of reasons that don't make me sound like a very good person, but I'm happy <laughs> to tell you about later in the uh, spirit of full disclosure. It turns out, anyway, that my liver anatomy is such that I can only donate to a child. Okay. So that worked out well. Um, um, And then we rescheduled for August. And then uh, a few days, actually the day before I was supposed to have the surgery, one of my labs that has never been weird before came back wacky. Um, And the thing with people, like, is if you check enough stuff medically you're going to find something because things vary, right? I mean, take your temperature, for instance. It's not 98.6. 
Fahrenheit. you know, or yeah. 30, right, Fahrenheit, sorry. Um, every second of every day. Yeah. It, it varies, right? So, like, if you check things, like, you're going to get some weird things. And so everyone thought it was probably just that. But given the fact that I was going through a surgery that was of no benefit to me, and we were putting this in someone else, like, we had to be sure. Yeah. And so we really went back and forth with canceling it versus what to do. And as I mentioned before, the, the date thing and the logistics of it, this, may, this was very, very stressful for me. Because um, the initial plan the team gave me was, we'll just repeat the labs in two weeks and then we'll see and go from there and reschedule it at some point. And I was like, that does not work. Like right. I either have to do this now or I have to be told I can't do this ever. Like we have to make a decision because I've already rearranged things at work like once before. Right, right. Um, I, I just, you know, I want to do this and I'm committed to doing it, but like that, that was a huge stressor for me. Um, so what we ended up deciding to do after discussions was biopsy my liver, um, which is where they just, they put a little, they bring you into the office. It takes a couple of hours. They give you some sedation. They stick a needle um, in through your skin. Um, and just to take a tiny, tiny, like, piece of the liver yeah. out. It's very small. And they look at it on the microscope and make sure it's okay. Okay. Um, and so they did that. And that took about 24 hours to have the results back. And I will tell you, those 24 hours were very difficult. Um, and... It's weird because I was going to have an answer one way or another. The answer was going to be either the biopsy is okay and we're going to do this later this week, like they were going to reschedule it that same week, or the biopsy is not okay and we're doing this never. Yeah. Um, so I was going to have an answer one way or the other. So logistically, that was good for me. But then emotionally, I was really nervous about getting that second answer because I had put so much emotional energy and time and my own resources just in terms of like mental energy yeah. into getting to this point to then have the day before be like, nope. And by this point, I also knew that my intended recipient was quite ill. Okay. Um, you know, I can't know a whole lot about her, but I did know her status on the waiting list, which is 1A, and that's the high, the highest you can get, which they do when someone is very, very sick and will die shortly without a liver. Oh, wow. Okay. And so while I'm not supposed to think about that, yeah, I couldn't help not? thinking yeah. about that, right? Um, and my team was great. Um, and my Ryan, my husband was super supportive and it was actually his line of questioning that led us to doing the biopsy, um, like to get a definitive answer. Okay. Um, so the, anyway, as you know, the biopsy ended up being fine. I went into surgery uh, on a Friday. Um, it was definitely surreal, um, being on the other side of things mm. in in my own hospital, because I donated in the hospital where I work. Oh, right. So, like, the preoperative rooms where I go to see patients, I was a patient. <laughs> like, the actual same room. Um, and so, it that was very surreal and very weird. Um, but everyone took great care of me. I cannot say enough good things about the team. Uh, the surgery was uncomplicated. Um, I don't remember a whole lot of the first 24 hours. Um, I think it's kind of cute that I woke up asking for my husband, Twoo Wo, 
Um, and then the stay in the hospital, I stayed there for five days. Um, and the recovery was a little harder than I expected, honestly, um, just from a pain and nausea and feeling crummy standpoint. Um, I think I expected it to be more like I've had two cesarean deliveries with both kids. And I think I expected it to be more like that, whereby day three or four, like your body feels familiar, you're kind you are sore, but you're kind of back to yourself. Um, and that was definitely not the case. Yeah. Um, there was, and it wasn't even the incisional pain. It was just like a lot of pain inside and like gas pain and like you can't eat. And it just, it feels very weird. Yeah. It sounded pretty Um, rough. It was, it was a little rougher than I expected. Um, and you know what? My team had told me that I just didn't listen. Um, I had said to them, well, I've had two C-sections. And they're like, no, this is going to be different. And I was like, no, okay. (laughs) I thought I knew. Um, so I should have listened. Um, but anyway, I got through it and went home. Um, and you know, they, they will keep you up to date on how the recipient is doing. So it helped me to hear from the surgeon, you know, she's doing well, um, you know, her labs are normalizing this and that, you know, they, again, they can't give you a lot of information based on the, the rules, um, that are set up around living organ donation. Um, but it was helpful to know that she was doing well. Yeah. Um, and, and that was interesting to me too, because they do, when you start, one of the things they ask you is, well, what if your recipient doesn't do well? Like, are you going to, how are you going to be emotionally mm. with that? And I had thought, you know, fine, like I'll be sad for them. Like that's crummy, but I did everything I could do. Um, you know, that's out of my hands. Um, but then when it came to it, that was not, that was not how I felt at all. Yeah. I could Um, totally see that. Yeah. Like my emotions were on a totally different page. Like if my recipient had not done well, because initially like she had some labs that were kind of out of whack, which is not unusual when you have a major surgery, but you're, when you are not feeling well either, like your, your head and your emotions are not like in a, you're not real good at, you know, sort of minding your own emotions that kind of get run away with you a little bit. And so initially when I heard that, I was like, I gave her a bad liver, (laughs) but you know, which, you know, in retrospect, and like, obviously that I would have dealt with that if that was the case. And, um, but it would have been harder than I had anticipated going into it. Um, so it was, um, the, the other part of it that was hard was doing this during a pandemic, right? So, um, I didn't have as much support to help me as I would have otherwise. Right. Um, you know, our initial plan was that my parents would come and stay with the kids. Ryan, my husband could be with me in the hospital the whole time. And that all got thrown out the window with the pandemic. I mean, up until a couple of days before the donation, you weren't even allowed to have any visitors. So I had anticipated being by myself. And then a couple of days ahead, they had, the hospital had changed that. Um, but still we hadn't made any plans. We didn't want our parents to fly across the country and risk their health. And so my husband was only able to be with me for like an hour or so each day. Yeah. Um, and that ended up being really hard. Although I have to say my work partners, um, were so kind and so helpful and went just above and beyond to the point where I am speechless and just don't have enough like words to express how grateful I am that they came over and helped me when my own family couldn't. Yeah. You know, they were like a second family to me. And 
grateful for that. Yeah, um, of course. Since they were already in the hospital, they were allowed to do that because part of the thing with COVID, right, is that they don't want additional people coming in the hospital. Right. But like my partners are already there because they work there. So um, that was, I mean, that was a nice thing for me that someone else wouldn't have had. Um, but it was, it was much needed. So, you know, in short, it was, this was a harder emotional and physical process than I had anticipated, but I'm still really, really glad I did it. Um, and I would do it again. Okay. Well, I mean, I won't do it again. I can't <laughs> do it again. Um, you can't do it more than once, but, um, but you know, I would make the same decision again. Okay. That's really good to hear. Um, yeah. And I, I know you still have a couple of weeks of recovery ahead, but it's, it's good at this point already to be able to see it as a really positive thing. And I just, I just know how, how really badly you wanted to do it, especially in that day when it looked like it might not happen. So. Yeah, that was really hard. I definitely, you know, my kids are home right now again because of the pandemic. So they're going to school virtually. And actually I think that helped because like externally I had to keep it together. Right. Right. Like they couldn't see mom like losing her mind. Um, and, right. And like crying and flopping about. Um, so inside I felt a lot of turmoil. Like the anxiety was next level. Yeah. Um, but I did manage to keep it together externally. And I think that actually was helpful to me as, as well. Yeah. Um, it gave me something to focus on. And of course it was really helpful to be able to reach out to you and be like, this is what I'm experiencing. Oh my gosh. And, um, just to just to have the support system that I had was uh, really key in keeping me sane through that those three days where we didn't really know what was going to happen. Yeah. And I think up until the last minute, I still was like, something's going to happen. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. Well, you've, you've mentioned like emotion a lot throughout this process, obviously. And so I just wanted to pivot to the other main thing I wanted to ask you about today. And that is about an article that I guess you wrote, you know, shortly before the donation, like maybe in the middle of the summer. Um, yeah, that sounds right. On reason and emotion. And I understand is going to be published. I don't think it's published just yet in... Um, a journal called Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is commonly known as the Green Journal um, in your your field. But um, and this was a piece that you wrote. I think it's called "Be Like Spock," and discussing kind of this tension between reason and emotion, logic and instinct that humans are always kind of wrestling with, but you, as a doctor in particular, are always wrestling with and. I'll just read one quote to start it out. So you wrote, the practice of medicine provides numerous moments in which instinct and rationality at first appear to be in conflict. We are sometimes required to act in ways that seem contrary to all human instinct. We bear witness to the depths of human tragedy and sorrow, but must go see the next patient and carry on with the day. We must maintain a certain detachment and logic to function in the universe that is clinical medicine. This mindset is necessary to do our job well. In the end, however, this approach also has limitations. It's necessary, but perhaps not sufficient for navigating the complexities of life in general and medical practice in particular. 
So I I read the whole piece, and I'll ask you about some other parts of it uh, in a little bit. But what what motivated you to write this piece? I mean, reason and emotion is, as you point out, something that maybe tugs at a lot of us all the time. But um, but why was this something that you wanted to write about? Uh, there was a particular uh, patient that um, prompted the essay, a particular experience that I had that I found myself struggling to put in context and to integrate into my psyche. Um, and I'll keep the details vague so that there's no HIPAA violation. Um, but I was called emergently to the uh, emergency room one day while I was the physician on call, the OB on call. Um, for a young woman who all we knew before she came in was that she was pregnant and she had quote unquote coded, which means that she doesn't have a heartbeat in the field. Um, and so, you know, I'm running to the ER and I'm thinking, okay, one of two things is happening. Like this is real. And then this is really scary or this lady fainted and everything's fine and I'm going to get down there and it's going to be okay. Um, unfortunately it was the former. Um, and, you know, this is a situation that I think is drilled into every OBGYN trainee's brain as to what you do. Um, but what I did find is that when it came time to do the thing, it was really hard. So the thing that you're supposed to do is once you have um, made efforts to resuscitate the mother for a period of time that are unsuccessful, um, the medical answer is to deliver the baby. Um, and this is done for mainly for maternal benefit because it improves the chances that resuscitative efforts will be successful mm. for the mother. Um, so that is the reason everyone thinks it's done to help the baby. Um, and, and I won't want to say that that's not part of it. Um, but actually the, the main reason is to benefit the mom. Okay. Um, so you're in this very surreal uh, environment of the ER and they are bringing this woman in who is clearly, you know, people have a certain look when they are not alive anymore and they were still making resuscitative efforts, but it was clear that it had been going on for some time without a positive response. Um, and so the answer was clear that I needed to do a cesarean delivery in the emergency room right then and there and deliver the baby. And, um, you know, we make a lot of difficult decisions in medicine every day, like nuance and taking into account all these different streams of data and patient preferences. And you know what? This decision was like not hard. Like this, there's an easy answer. There was one answer and you know what to do. But the actual act of like putting the scalpel to the skin and making the incision was... I did not hesitate, but it was emotionally like flashing through my head. And again, this is all in retrospect, right? Um, was that it just felt so wrong. Um, I didn't know this person. I didn't have consent. We hadn't like ever discussed this in clinic. She wasn't a patient that I had taken care of before. There was no family there. Um, it felt like a, like a, desecration or something. Um, but I knew it was the right thing to do. So I did it. Um, and through some 
neonatology magic, the baby actually did really well. Um, but the, the patient, the mom did not survive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's kind of what I meant is that in that circumstance, I sort of needed logic to be like, do the thing, you know, like turn everything else off, like suppress all the human emotions and do the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then afterwards, it's not like I could go home. You know, I had other patients in labor. I had to go back to the floor and still take care of people. Yeah. Um, so you kind of turn it off, right? Because you, you have, you have to, right? Um, and through the next couple of days, people would ask, you know, are you okay? That sounds really traumatic. And I was like, yeah, you know, but it's just, just hard, but, and I'm sad, but I did everything I was supposed to do. And this is the job. And, you know, part of me, like logically was like, well, people die all over the world all day, you know, all the time. Like people are dying right now and I'm not crying. Like, why is this different just because I was physically there? Like, there's nothing special about my presence. Um, but what I came to realize, and I don't remember where I came up with the Spock analogy, um, but was that uh, I'm not, I'm not an alien. You know, like that's a, a very sort of like, logical and cold approach and yes it does logically that makes sense right but i'm not an alien i'm a person and so i'm going to have feelings and emotions like a person does and that that's okay um and why it took me so long to like come to that realization of oh it's okay for me to have human emotions about this even though logically they don't make total sense why it took me so long to come to that realization, I think is in part in just the sort of Western narrative of that logic always wins. Um, but also like in medicine, it's even more so. Um, and especially as we do need to like tap into that part of our psyche that is like, just turn off the emotion, just do, be the doctor, just do the thing. Um, but then like you're supposed to be, then it's, it's still there and you're supposed to be able to turn it back on. And it was all very, very confusing to me Mm -hmm. Um, to the point that I was on a plane and found myself like big, ugly crying, um, flying across the country. And I think it was just because it was the first time I'd really sat quietly without doing a whole bunch of stuff. Um, And so that got me thinking about it, which was that, um, you know, Star Trek does a great job of this, like not to totally nerd it out, but, um, you know, I'm not a Vulcan. I am a human and I'm going to react like a human and that that is just okay. And I can just be okay with that. And that's it. And that's the end. Mm-hmm. Like what, pe- what do people say? That's the tweet. Like, <laughs> you can be okay with it. And like that to me was just so freeing. Yeah. I, and I, I like how you, you know, you, you had this experience, you wrote about you, know, a lot of these inner thoughts on reason and emotion and the way you kind of bookend that essay with two very different kinds of references. The first, which you just mentioned, is the Star Trek reference with Spock. And you, you write, you know, Vulcans essentially have, like, finely tuned, like, logical defense mechanisms. Reason is highly valued, and they rarely, if ever, expo- express emotion. Humans, while occasionally logical by accident, are not generally so by nature, so the story goes. And so the conflict between instinct and logic for the character Spock becomes a metaphor for the common human experience. And so I, I like the way you kind of brought Spock in with that. And then <laughs> the, 
the other reference that you use, which which I which really resonated with me, was Plato. So a very different kind of reference. And you wrote how we Plato- are full on nerd mode here. <laughs> it is totally true. It is so true. Um, yeah. So you 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 just describe how Plato also describes reason and emotion as two horses pulling a chariot in different directions with the goal of the driver being to bring the emotion horse in line with the reason horse. And I I really love that image. And I was so glad that you brought that in as well. Um, How how did you, how did you decide to like bring those two kind of images, I guess, together to work out what you were feeling? Well, part of it is that I didn't want to present my feelings or my thoughts as some like eureka moment as if I was the first person to think of this, right? Um, Philosophers and psychiatrists um, and psychologists have been talking about this for centuries, right? So it's not as if I have some like brilliant insight here into the nature of the human psyche. Um, So I kind of wanted to acknowledge that for one. Um, uh, and then two, I just, I thought it was, um, you know, it was it a useful metaphor because you do kind of feel like you're struggling with these almost external forces Yeah, and the forces of course are inside you, but they feel in a way external as if your own consciousness does not have total control of them, mm-hmm. which is kind of fascinating. And I'm sure someone has something smart to say about that. But um, it was fascinating to me because my conscious mind was saying one thing and then I was bawling on a plane. So obviously part of my brain was saying something different. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, who is that? <laughs> where, where is this coming from? Um And so I found that analogy to be very useful. Um, And I think, you know, as I've learned more about that analogy uh, or the way that that Plato saw it, and and philosophers, it turns out, have gone back and forth with this across the years as to if one is better than the other. Um, But I think recent psychology and and, um, sociology studies have, been supporting the idea, which is kind of where I came around to understand that as humans, we use, we use them both and we use them all. And it's both emotion and logic and instinct and our conscious brain, like it's all mixed up together. And it's nice to sort it into neat little piles because humans like to categorize things. It makes us feel in control. Um, but it's not always possible to do that. And this is one of those times where those things can work together and logic can inform emotion and emotion can inform reason. And the two can get mixed up to actually make us better decision makers, um, better physicians, since this is kind of where this article was coming from, but um, it could be applied to many other things. Um, better able to navigate our world and integrate these experiences that we have into ourselves and into our psyche. Yeah, and you know, since I mean, as you said, that tension I think is you know, constantly there for humanity for individuals. I guess since you kind of confronted it in this way after having this experience, though, 
and reflected on this a lot more than I think you know most of us are doing in our day to day. How much more aware of this tension have you been since this? Like, are is that something you think about a bit more now? And if so, is it mainly at work or is it in other things in life too? I do notice it more and I do find myself coming back to kind of the conclusions I made in the article and having to remind myself of them, in yeah. fact. Um, uh, even as we were discussing earlier in the podcast, the um, the organ donation, right? And a lot of the emotions that go along with that are not strictly logical, mm-hmm. um, right? Like how the recipient does is not really on, on me, right? I have zero control over that. Yeah. Um, and logically, you should be able to be like, okay, you know, whatever, that shouldn't affect me. But of course it does. Um, and even like with trying to decide if this was something I could do or not. I mean, the biopsy results were totally out of my hands. Yeah. Um, they were going to be what they were going to be. Um, and so one should think, well, I should just sleep well and carry on. Um, and I, you know, it just, it doesn't like, that doesn't happen. Like your emotions are just on a different page sometimes. And you do the best that you can to kind of try and explore that and, and let, allow yourself to feel that a little bit more. And I'm trying to be more aware of asking myself, okay, well, you know, what are the, are these feelings trying to tell me something? Is this, um, should I be looking at this a different way? Or is this one of those times where I just have to be like, I'm just going to be okay with this. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I was wondering too, you know, with kind of these, again, these two horses, so to speak, as, as Plato would have it with reason and emotion. Do you think if, like, if because of one's profession and work or even, you know, just social conditioning, upbringing, what have you, has you kind of hyper-focused on the reason side, do you think when like we're outside of our work environment, for example, then we're more likely to be more emotional to kind of balance it out and kind of like let it out? Or do you think that part just gets like harder to tap into in general? And, and I think it's partly different for individuals, which is why, because I think you and I are somewhat different in how we express emotions like outside of work. Um, And obviously our work is very different too. And obviously I'm not like comparing these things to like, yeah, delivering. Our work has a lot of similarities, but, um, though. Um, yeah, and I guess you know I'm, you see oh, again things that are really awful and um, that are hard to witness as a human, and yet you have to kind of go on and like be like, "I'm going to do something about this," and here's the things I'm going to do, and not just like curl up in a ball somewhere and be sad about the right. state of and, the situation. And it's and not 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 teaching, of course, which is usually not quite that traumatic. But um, but right when I'm doing humanitarian work, sure. Like if you, yeah. if you, you know, obviously you need an emotional capacity to want to do some of that kind of work to care enough to want to do it, I guess. But um, at the same time, right? Like if you actually, if you actually absorbed all the pain and suffering that. You see through right, that you would kind go of work. insane. Right, you would just like collapse under like the weight of it. Um, so yeah, so you, I, I get that, and I, but sometimes then I wonder, um, is my emo- emotion horse just kind of like like plodding along back in the stable while the reason horse is like <laughs> tearing on the stretch? Because it's like sometimes I'm like, come on, emotion horse. Like sometimes it's hard for me to like jumpstart that after, or like you said, then it just like comes out of nowhere. Um, 
And I was wondering how that works for you or if you find kind of at the end of the day with the hospital, you leave the hospital and it's like, yay, my emotions can come out like in full force, like the way they want to. Like, is there, does that ever happen or do you think about that at all? I do. And honestly, I think what you said about it being individual is true. Um, Upbringing, I'm sure, has a lot to do with it, although you and I had a similar upbringing, so (laughs) I don't know. Who knows? Um, Honestly, I find it just more surreal sometimes when I leave the hospital. Mm. Um, You know, you walk away from some, uh, you know, either... Usually it's surreal if it's some kind of terrible experience that someone is having and you're trying to help them through it and keep them safe and take the best care of them that you can in a bad situation. And you leave and you like go to your kid's baseball game. Yeah. And sometimes I find myself being like, what is happening? (laughs) You know, like someone is, how can, how can we just like go on with our regular things when someone is dealing with that, which I think we all know when like something terrible happens to us, you like look around and you're like, how is everyone else still being normal? Yeah. Because it seems like the world should stop, but of course it doesn't. Um, and I'm sure there's probably another essay in there somewhere. Um, and it was like, I don't we know. need just... it to continue on. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like you do. If, you know, if it's, if everything did always stop or like, yeah, it's, like you said, we would all just, we would be constantly in this, like, No one would do position. anything. We'd right. be a mess, right? Um, well, one of, you know, I, I know one of your favorite books and one of the books that I just finished reading is East of Eden. And our uh, dad mentioned that too. And in there, uh, one of the characters has this terrible experience of grief. And one of the other characters tells him, um, you know, you just have to keep going through the motions mm-hmm. of like regular life. Um, and while sometimes that does not apply Um, of course, um, I think in the circumstances that we're discussing, like for us, I find that that works actually pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and yeah, I mean, I think about it and, and sometimes things just hit you in a weird way. Who knows why, like a particular person or particular patient just like touches a nerve in you that like makes you feel it more than normal that you usually would. And, who knows why that that happens? I think the human brain and the human psyche is is so fascinating and so complicated, and there's so many things we don't know about it. And I'm really glad there's smart people studying it and trying to find out about these things because I just think it is so interesting. Likewise, well, it's I'm I'm really grateful for people like you who are, you know, lay people so to speak, and some of the stuff we've been talking about, but are still putting it out there to reflect on. And again, whether it's for even though you're writing from the medical perspective, a lot of what, what you said in that piece just resonated with me as well. Um, well, I know we could keep chatting for a while, but is there anything else that you wanted to, to raise or comment on or ask me about or anything today? Um, you know, there's one thing that I've been wanting to say to someone. Okay. You can cut this out if you want. Um, but you had a uh, Andy on your show a couple of weeks ago, and I really, really enjoyed his interview. You guys talked a lot about faith and how that plays into how we interact with the world. Yep, yep, there was, and, uh, yep. Yeah, was it Andy, Andy, right? Yeah, Andy Willis. So Andy was on, yeah. I think, episode eight, yeah, so. Yeah, so I, I thought I really enjoyed listening to it, but 
as you know, I am not a person um, who has a religious faith. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed throughout this whole organ donation experience is how many people credit God, hmm. um, uh, especially when talking about the recipient. God is great. You know, our prayers were answered, things like this. Um, and it, it's curious to me because, you know, I said to Ryan the other day, it's not, I didn't do this, like, in spite of the fact that I'm an atheist. Like, I did it because of that fact. Like, if I thought that there was some benevolent being that was going to fix this all, I wouldn't bother. Hmm. Why would I do it myself? Why would I feel the need to help anyone else? If there was something, you know, if you either did one of two things, you know, either God fixes it or it's God's will if it doesn't end well, and then who am I to interfere? Um, so like the fact that I feel that there isn't help coming from another quarter mm -hmm. means that it only comes from one another and therefore we need to show up for each other. And I feel that very deeply. And that's one of the reasons I try to make a difference in the world as I'm moving through it. And so that was just very interesting to me, the different perspectives that people had um, versus my actual motivations. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we've talked about faith and atheism and religion, which we haven't done like a ton, I guess, but I, I do think one thing that's, um, that comes through in, in your speaking to that topic and to especially coming from a more secular perspective is right how you you then like double down on the need for like humanity and like individual humans to do the work exactly and right. to be there and to yeah show up and it's like right if anything it's more for you I and I, I think it's yeah, just really interesting, like mobilizing for being a good person because, right, there's not going to, you know, there won't be a divine hand doing, like coming and take a piece out of your liver to put it in the little baby, you know what I mean? Like you, you had right. to step up to do that. And, and that was a really interesting way that I think, like you really emphasize, I think the moral the moral implications of atheism or secularism in a really positive framing that I don't always see from those writing or speaking from within that frame or outside of it. And that's always refreshing to hear from you. Anyway, so yeah, you can cut that out if you want. I just, it's been something that's been on my mind. Yeah, no, thank you so much for bringing it in. Cause I hadn't asked you about that actually if, and I, but I assume that, um, that, yeah, that probably was some of the sentiment, especially living in Utah where you live, which is, you know, a very um, right. faith-based place and whatnot. So, right. And I, I certainly don't object to anyone, you know, having their own beliefs in, in, in any way. Um, but just the, uh, the discussion around this and, um, how people attribute it and how people view it was striking to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you a lot for bringing that up and for, for sharing that. Um, well, on that note, I know you gave us a book recommendation last time you were on, but I was wondering if you have any new recommendations for us today. Yeah, let's go with um, 
Well, I'll give you an author. Um, so Atul Gawande is a surgeon in, um, I think he's in Boston. And he writes a lot about the interplay of medicine and humanity. Um, his first book, I think, is called Complications. And that's, uh, I read that when I was a trainee. Uh, and But it, it, you don't need to be a medical person to write it, to read it and to enjoy it. He writes for The New Yorker quite a bit. Um, but it's about how well, a lot of the things we've been talking about, how we kind of reconcile being a human with some of the things that we see and how you navigate that world. I think his most recent book or one of his more recent uh, is called uh, Being Mortal, um, which I also think is a great book and everyone should read it. Um, it talks a lot about thinking about how we die and uh, talking about decision making at the end of life and what we want and having hard conversations with our families. Um, so I, I would recommend any of his books, but I think those two are my favorite. Great. Yeah. And I know we've, we've talked about those books before in the past. So thanks for bringing them on the podcast and I'll link to them in the show notes. So, well, thank you again for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on and it was great to begin the season with you and wrap up the season with you as well. Uh, well, thanks for having me, Julie. It's always good to talk to you. Well, good luck with continuing your recovery and um, we'll talk soon. Okay. Sounds great. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you once again to Dr. Kara Huser. You've been listening to the Julie Norman show. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, this is actually the last uh, episode for season one, but I'll be back soon with more conversations with interesting people doing extraordinary things in not too long. And till then, please tell your friends about the show, give it a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and please feel free to send me any feedback. You can DM me on Twitter at Dr. Julie Norman too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay well, and we'll be back soon.